Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. My name is Ben Phillips, and I work with Michigan State University Extension. And my name is Natalie Hoytel. I work with the University of Minnesota Extension. How are we doing this, Natalie? So this podcast is brought to you by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It was kickstarted by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center, and our license for transistor is held by the University of Minnesota Extension. And you can listen to this episode and all the rest at glveg.net slash listen. Enjoy the show. After recording the first episode in this series, a conversation with Dr. Elsa Sanchez and Thomas Ford about phosphorus and salt buildup in the soils of vegetable farms, I had a conversation with three freshwater ecologists of the University of Minnesota, Christy Dolph, Jacques Finlay, and Brent Dalzell. I had some questions about how much it actually matters from an ecosystem perspective if we have phosphorus loading on vegetable farms, especially if those farms don't make up a huge portion of the landscape and if they're using good practices like strips of perennials, cover crops, and other practices that should reduce erosion and surface runoff. I shared the numbers from Pennsylvania soil tests discussed in the last episode and some anecdotal soil tests from the upper Midwest and asked Christy, Jacques, and Brent to weigh in. Here's Christy. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like, I, I mean, I think those are high numbers. But I think because we're so focused on like what's happening to the phosphorus, I, like my first questions are like, well, what's the hydrology of the vegetable farm? Like, is it tiled? Um, and the fact that there's like strips that are there. Like, so basically the thing with phosphorus, it's like what you're putting on is how I'm starting to think about it. What you're putting on on a regular basis, then is it readily going to be lost? either through soil erosion or through like overland flow, um, or a lot is being lost potentially like from stream banks because the hydrology of these regions have been altered so much that the stream banks are eroding a lot. Um, so in some ways, like if these farms have ways that are trapping phosphorus, it could be good. Um, then there also could be like really high flow events where all that trap phosphorus is then going to be like exported across the, the land. So that's just what I started thinking about is like, what does that different type of landscape mean for how the phosphorus is actually going to like get out to the waterways? And if it's not tiled, that's a lot different than, you know, the farms that, that we typically are talking about. I guess I'm curious, like there is this assumption that like, it's fine because phosphorus is immobile in the soil. <laughs> and I know it's not actually immobile, but like we think of nitrogen as like moving all over the place. And like farmers are kind of like, oh, phosphorus is immobile. So like, it'll just stay there. Um, I'm I guess I'm curious if you have some like general principles, like in sandy soil, there's more risk or like this many feet from a stream, or I guess like, it seems like intuitively, like the further you are away from a stream or the more buffers you have, the less it's going to move around. And I'm curious if there are some general rules about like, how far do you need to be to reduce the risk or what characteristics do those buffers need to have? Like with something like riparian buffers, 
I mean, the concern that people are starting to see is that those buffers also get saturated for phosphorus over time and then start to leak. Um, so, yeah, I think we don't we don't necessarily have a super great handle on like like your questions are so good because it's like yeah how wide of a buffer or you know wetlands yeah. like wetlands will store phosphorus to a point and then they will probably start to leak it when they become saturated um so i mean that's the problem with phosphorus is like one i think it's really not immobile <laughs> like it's really moving a lot across the land and some of the work that we've done in southern minnesota like half of the phosphorus sometimes in these systems is coming from dissolved phosphorus. So it's actually phosphorus that one way or another is like leaching out of these systems. It's no longer, it's not bound to the soil. It's now dissolved in water. And that's a pretty hefty component of what's ending up in the rivers. Um, and there's different pathways for that. So like the breakdown of decaying vegetation can release phosphorus. Um, you can also get, you know, once the soil reaches a certain phosphorus level, it can only hold so much and the rest is going to, you know, become dissolved. Um, but I think, so I guess the crux is like there are things you can put on the landscape that will change how it, how it moves and probably hold on to it for longer. Um, what I keep circling back to in my mind is this thing with the turkey manure, because that's like still an ecological rift. So like that turkey manure, <laughs> that's still like phosphorus that was mined from somewhere like Africa, came here to fertilize crops that were fed to turkeys. Now we've got the turkey manure and we're putting it on the land. Like it's still not actually a closed loop, <laughs> you know? So we're still getting a lot of excess phosphorus on the land of which a good, a good part of it is gonna ultimately like be lost. To the surrounding environment. So part of it, I think definitely the inputs has got to be a thing. Um, and then the transport is the other, other piece. But what I struggle with so much with phosphorus is like, you can't permanently, unless like Jacques saying, like maybe we can mine it from our <laughs> environment. But once it's out there, eventually it's probably going to mobilize. So that's why it's always like stabbing me in the heart because it's like, it's not like nitrogen. We can't, we can't subtract it from the system once it's out there. Um, and there are things you can do to alter how quickly it will be you know, transported to waterways, which I think Jacques is saying, like, we don't know enough about how that works. Um, but it's frustrating because a lot of those practices even will eventually start to leak phosphorus. Like they can only hold so much. I don't know, that's not very helpful. I wish there was like a silver bullet of like, the riparian buffer should be 50 feet wide and you're good. That's <laughs> <I wish laughs> Yeah, no, I think the, the key is figuring out how to reduce phosphorus inputs, but then for the farms that already have so much phosphorus, it's like, okay, what, what do we do in that situation? Um, yeah, this, this idea that phosphorus is immobile is, um, there's really kind of been a change in paradigm in the last, I don't know, decade or so, you know, I, I you know, I'd say even 15 years ago, I, I would have told you the same thing. And, um, you know, we're, and we're just realizing that, you know, once these systems get saturated, it's, it's not as mobile as nitrate, but um, to say it's immobile, I think is, is not fair. And, and that's probably, but that's probably taken a while to, 
to work its way into the kind of collective consciousness of, of growers. You know, at best, it's temporarily immobile sometimes, you know. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, growing body of literature that shows that things that we think of being good for agriculture, like no-till practices, can, you know, they're good for sediment, but they, they can actually result in slight increases in phosphorus export under the right conditions. Um, is that because the phosphorus is not being worked into the soil and so it's not going to surface? Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's um, you know, those really organic or phosphorus rich organic residues, you know, they, they decompose and it's, it's not bound to any stationary phase. And so when there's enough of it, it it's just ready to go. Yeah, this, this idea of like the, the, the more organic inputs you can add, the better, right? And just build up soil organic matter. Um, I can see how you could talk yourself into thinking that was the right practice. But if you were to, you know, just phrase that in terms of fertilizing a field and turn it into those numbers, I think a lot of people would probably be pretty astounded at what they were doing. And, and just because it's it's in a mulch, you know, it doesn't change the fact that you're putting on 10 times more than you need to be or something like that. The relationships are messy, but you can see, you know, if you want to relate runoff, like field runoff concentration to any one factor, uh, Bray or soil test phosphorus, I mean, those are usually the strongest results that you see, like um, maybe above a threshold, you start to see a pretty linear but noisy relationship between what you see in runoff and that sort of the excess phosphorus. So those those things you could, you know, are fairly well developed or could be developed. And then sort of when do you get runoff is the really hard part because it involves soil and climate and all these other things. After my conversation with Christy, Brett, and Jacques, I reached out to another ecologist, Chip Small, who has been working on quantifying the impacts of nutrient loading in urban agriculture in the Twin Cities on the broader watershed. While he's looking at urban systems, his research has some important takeaways for farmers. Yeah, um, well, I'm Chip Small. I'm a, a faculty member at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I'm an ecosystem ecologist. So uh, um, my background is, is thinking about how nutrients cycle in ecosystems. And, um, you know, I, I've worked, uh, studied phosphorus in streams and a tropical rainforest in Costa Rica. Um, I came to Minnesota 12 years ago to work on a project on the Great Lakes. So we looked at nitrogen and phosphorus in the Great Lakes and some of the um, other bodies of water that, that flow into it. Um, and then for the past decade, I've been at, at St. Thomas and I've gotten more and more interested in urban ecosystems. And um, one of my colleagues, Adam Kay, had started a campus research garden and I started collaborating with him and thinking about, you know, how, how do these questions that I've been working on in other types of ecosystems you know, it's really the same processes, right? It's the same, um, the same processes are happening and you can apply the same lens um, to ask these questions um, in something that's more practical, you know, in, in some ways, it's, it's a lot easier to talk to your parents about what you're doing when it involves um, gardens and, you know, maybe Great Lakes or tropical rainforests. Um, 
so, so that's sort of how I got into this. It's been a great way to plug uh, students and research undergraduates and, um, and, and it's been a lot of fun. And, and I think it hopefully led to some useful information. Yeah, nice. So, so one of those useful pieces of information um, was a, a study that you published in 2019. Um, and this is really the study that got me thinking about this topic. Like I think we, a lot of people know that there is a lot of phosphorus loading in like at least kind of small scale organic farms. I think we're starting to see that that trend is bigger, um, but didn't really know what that meant, kind of assumed, oh, phosphorus is immobile, so maybe it doesn't matter. And you published this study um, from Twin Cities Urban Farms and Gardens, where you estimated how much phosphorus was actually entering the watershed from those gardens. Um, and I'm wondering if you can give some background on that study for the listeners and talk about what you learned. Yeah, this was this was kind of the first phase of our, our uh, big project that we've been working on for the past six or seven years. Um, so we started just with a survey. We, we created an electronic survey. We distributed it through, um, you know, through, through different garden listservs, through community councils and, and um, you know, any, any venue that would, <laughs> that would share it. And we, um, we got responses from about 145 uh, different gardeners, uh, both backyard gardens and, and a few urban farms and community garden plots um, across St. Paul and Minneapolis. And so we, we asked questions like, um, you know, how large is the area that you garden? Um, you know, what are your management practices? What do you, what do you do for soil amendments? What specific type of soil amendments do you use? How much do you apply every year? What crops do you plant? What are your typical yields? Um, and we based that survey on a, a similar um, survey that my colleague uh, Genevieve Metzen had done in Montreal um, that was part of her dissertation work. So she had done a, a previous phosphorus budget for urban agriculture in Montreal, and we adapted that for the Twin Cities. Um, and we found kind of similar results. Um, on average, um, people are applying a lot more um, nutrients as compost, and in particular phosphorus, than what the crops are able to take up. Uh, it's, oftentimes it's nitrogen that's going to be the limiting nutrients. Um, and if you're adding enough soil amendments to, to give your crops enough nitrogen, you're probably adding way too much compost. And so from our survey data, um, you know, they're uh, somewhat back of the envelope calculations, but on average, um, people are the, the median is, is most people are putting uh, 40 times more phosphorus on their gardens than the crops are, are able to take up. So the question is what's happening to the rest of it? Um, and then we were able, kind of a second phase of that same study, we were able to go out to a subset of those gardens and collect soil samples, measure plant available phosphorus in the soil, um, and then compare that to um, soil from their lawns as well. And, and um, you know, the, the garden soil was quite high, typically uh, um, 80 um, parts per million uh, was the, the um, Olson phosphorus plant available phosphorus and uh and there was it was also correlated with the age of the garden so the the longer they had been had that garden in operation the higher the plant available phosphorus was which is again is consistent with it just building up over time um so that was that was sort of the foundation for for a lot of our work and then we've we built on that with with additional experiments at our research garden at the university of st thomas um you know looking at um how much 
how efficiently do you do you, uh, you know what fraction of, of the phosphorus and compost is actually being recovered by crops um, under like normal conditions when people are putting a lot of compost on the gardens um, and then what are what are kind of strategies to optimize that so we've we're in year six of a study to try to um, to try to really target compost applications and see how high we can get that um, you know, minimizing phosphorus loss and maximizing uptake by crops um, without without sacrificing yields. Um, so that's that was that's this study, the survey study that that you're um, referring to is was sort of the the impetus for um, kind of the, the experimental work that that we've been doing since then. Yeah, nice. And so I think when I first read that study, my reaction was like, oh well, like it's just backyard gardens people in gardens are probably like adding way more fertilizer than a farmer would. But then when I saw the, the actual rates in the soil, like 80 Olson was kind of like, oh, actually that, that's what we're seeing on farms too, to some extent. So maybe this is actually really applicable in terms of like the, some of the conclusions that you're drawing. I think so. And, um, you know, I, I first got interested in this question. Um, I got to be part part of a, a sustainable phosphorus uh, workshop at Arizona State University, I think it was 2011, um, and, and heard from a, a couple of researchers who had worked with um, both in the, the fertilizer industry and with organic farms. Um, and and where there's some awareness that this is an issue with organic farms. If you're, if you're fertilizing using manure, um, again, that it's, you're adding a lot of phosphorus relative to nitrogen. Um, and, and um, you know, there's a challenge. How do you how do you recycle a non-limiting nutrient, right? Mm -hmm. um, that you know, we on, on the one hand, you know, there's there's been some some scientists have argued that phosphorus could become a limiting nutrient for global agriculture in the next century, and on the other hand, we have too much of it, you know, <laughs> where we where we don't yeah. need it locally, and um, and so especially when you have a lot of phosphorus in your soils, you know, you're your plants can't live without it and and yet um typically what they need is, is some of these other nutrients and um and so how do we how do we recycle those those nutrients when you know when the the, the stoichiometric balance the ratio of n to p to k um you, you know there, there's just some some mass balance problems there um, yeah. so you know if we're, if we're talking about scaling up urban agriculture um, and, you know, as, as cities are, are trying to keep more organic waste out of landfills and producing more and more compost, um, we need to think about how do we use that without inadvertently creating pollution issues. Yeah, so I already asked this to Christy and Brent and Jacques, but I want to ask you this question about how mobile actually is phosphorus in the soil. We don't talk about it as being mobile when we talk about nutrient management. But as someone who studies it, um, I'd love to hear your take on that, as well as this concept of legacy phosphorus that you talk about in some of your work. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, so the the mobility question is really interesting because I mean it's true phosphorus is is tend you know tends to be sticky. It, it binds to soil. It, it's less soluble than you know compared to nitrate, which is extremely soluble. It kind of just goes wherever the water goes. Um, and so in a lot of cases, a lot of, you know, conventional agriculture systems, a lot of the phosphorus loss off of farms is due to soil erosion. There's phosphorus that's, you know, stuck to these soil particles that are moving into the Minnesota River or wherever. 
but um but there's a there's a limit to how much phosphorus um, soil can bind and it depends on you know the mineralogy the clay content and the ph and the redox conditions and all that. so it's the, the chemistry gets gets to be complicated but but regardless it can only hold so much and so if you're putting on you know excess phosphorus year after year after year um, eventually you're going to reach a point where where the soil is 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 saturated, you know, it's it's holding on to all it can, and any excess phosphorus, um, it you know can can leach out, uh, either be lost um, via runoff or via leachate, and so in our um, in our garden experiments, we have lysimeters, just buried leachate collectors, really low tech bottles with funnels with tubes that we can pull the water out, measure the dissolved phosphorus, and calculate how much phosphorus is is escaping from um, from these experimental raised. Uh, raised bed garden plots that we have, um, and you know, on, on a, it's not a huge percent of the total. Again, most of that phosphorus is just building up, but in some cases, about as much is leaching out as is actually being recovered by the crops. So that's a problem. If you you know, it, we can't just assume that the phosphorus, the nutrients that you put on your garden as compost, are recycled. Um, you know, really, what's recycled is what's recovered by the crops. Um, and then the rest is building up and some fraction of that is leaching out. We've also done some studies just digging soil cores down below um, our raised bed garden, so into the native soil, and we see elevated phosphorus, um, you know, up to a meter below these garden plots. Um, so you know, we know it's kind of slowly moving its way down through the soil. Um, now, you know, is that a huge problem? It, it depends on the scale, on the grand scheme of things R right now. There's probably other, you know, other sources of phosphorus that are going to be larger than urban gardens, but um, we're currently doing some, uh, some watershed runoff modeling with different garden scenarios to show, you know, what are the situations where this could be really important from an urban watershed budget, um, and in some cases it might be. Um, the other question you asked was about legacy phosphorus, and that's you know, th that's just th this issue of, of build phosphorus building up um, in the environment. Um, so you can have kind of a, a reservoir of phosphorus that might be causing problems for a long time in the future, despite um, what your current management actions are. So for example, in, in lakes, um, I'm, I'm doing some work in urban lakes, and sometimes, you know, that we do a lot of work to try to reduce um, phosphorus moving into urban lakes but there's a lot of phosphorus in the sediment of that lakes that's it's called internal loading phosphorus coming out and causing algal blooms um, and, and so so that's a, a legacy phosphorus problem um, and, and the same is you know is true in, in soils as well so phosphorus just builds up in, in soils or along hydrologic flow paths and um, you know it, it could it could cause issues for decades or centuries um, into the future yeah, thanks for explaining that. I think that's a really difficult concept, especially for like maybe beginning farmers who don't have a lot of background in soils and like nutrient calculations and stuff. I think often like people will put a ton of compost on their beds and it looks really good. Like the plants look really good. And so it must be a good thing, right? And maybe 10 years from now, you start to see the plant health effects. And it sounds like it it could potentially be even longer before you start to see the environmental effects of that. I think so, and you know that the environmental effects I would argue are probably more like in aggregate, right? Like it's something yeah. that we should, as, as a community of people who are gardening and farming, need to be thinking about. So, you know, at, 
what you do as an individual in your backyard isn't going to make or break. It's not going to tip the balance into, you know, causing eutrophication problems in some lake probably. But, um, but collectively, you know, if everybody's doing that, which is kind of what we're seeing from the survey data, right? Most people are putting way too much phosphorus. Um, then, then that is, you know, then we need to, to be smart about that. Um, and, and you know, it's it's not to say that that you should never add a lot of you know there there may be situations where you're starting a new garden where it makes where you're trying to build the soil mm -hmm. and it makes sense to be having a lot of a lot of inputs right you know you're trying to build up that organic matter um, so you know I, I would say and, and uh, you know I'm I'm not an extension agent but I would say you know that that makes sense as long as you're intentional about what you're doing but I think there's a lot of cases where um, it, you know, like you said, it just feels like the right thing to do that, that that's just you're in the habit of adding a lot of organic matter year after year after year. And, um, you know, once once you have your soil at a place where you want it, um, then it might be time to change strategies and say, OK, now, you know, I just need to keep a certain amount of nitrogen. Maybe you can add that nitrogen through a, a cover crop alfalfa or something, you know, and um, and and you don't need to be putting in a bunch of new phosphorus each year. Yeah, those are good points. There are plenty of farms and gardens that are nutrient deficient still. So this is not a blanket statement, but uh, yeah, also your point about it being kind of a community effort, I think it's really important. Um, I guess that brings me to this last question of, I think sometimes even when you do have enough nutrients in your soil, it can feel kind of scary to do nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I think that's true across like human experience, right? Doing nothing is always harder than doing something. Um, and so sometimes adding a little bit of something can feel almost like an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. And you're doing some work in these plots that are already pretty saturated um, with kind of different levels of compost, even applying nothing. Can you just talk about what you're finding in those trials? Yeah, you know, this is, um, so So we started six years ago. Um, these garden plots had been going for about five years at that point. And, and so, you know, already had fairly high organic matter content. But from that point, we started um, you know, different experimental treatments where we're adding uh, one of two types of compost, either um, composted cow manure or municipal compost. And um, either at a higher level to meet the, the crop um, nitrogen demands, which means they're getting excess phosphorus, and, and even that higher amount is still lower than what most most people are putting in their gardens, or a lower amount to meet the the nitrogen or to meet the phosphorus demand, and then we're adding some extra inorganic nitrogen. We also have plots that only get um, synthetic fertilizer to to meet the nitrogen and phosphorus demand, and then we have control plots where we've added nothing, no soil amendments for six years. And it took a few years, um, but finally, you know, we're starting to see slight decreases in the um, in the crop yields in the control plots that have gotten no soil amendments after like five or six years. Um, but you know, probably my my bet would be that that most people could could take you know one or two years off from adding any soil amendments, and you probably wouldn't notice any decreases in yields. Um, and you know, even in these control plots, the the soil phosphorus is still pretty high. It's come down, you know, maybe five or ten percent over that many years. But th that's the legacy phosphorus thing, right? There's just so much in the soil, and it was going to take a long time to use it all up. So what happens if you don't add anything eventually? Uh, that nitrogen is going to run out first, and that's what's going to limit the crops. 
Um, but you know, the good news from from this experiment is is these targeted compost applications um, are working really well. The crop yields are doing fine. Um, it's you know the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen that we're losing from leachate is pretty low, um, and so it's a, a high fraction of what we're adding is getting recycled into the crops. So. Um, you know, I, I think the take-home message is, you know, if we're if we're intentional about um, what we're doing, you know, if, if gardeners, farmers get their soils tested, and and add soil amendments based on what the data say that the soil needs, um, the you know, the crop yields are, are probably going to be fine, and 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 you're going to be minimizing your your losses of of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus to the environment. Yeah, that is good news. And I think that's what we expect, but it's always really nice when mm -hmm. you see your expectations actually play out in reality too. So that's encouraging. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Navin. I enjoyed the conversation with Christy and Jacques and Brent. They seem like uh, they know a lot about these systems and they come at it from a different a different perspective that we don't hear as often in the ag community and Definitely. I thought that, that was an important perspective to hear um, and I guess the one takeaway that I took that that is lodged with me now is how phosphorus is mobile and at yep. some point at some point in the line of farm education it got the it got like the associated with immobility isn't and, that funny it's it so drilled in that phosphorus is immobile yeah and that that little factoid is immobile in our brains too because <laughs> it's like a very hard thing to then change your mind about yeah having heard it kind of drilled in so many ways yeah yeah so, it was funny to hear like all of these ecologists so unequivocally say phosphorus is mobile <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah. okay, that's, yeah, that's a total game changer. My, my favorite. I think what Christy said really stuck with me and it's so obvious, but this idea of phosphorus being an ecological rift and just sort of imagining like it's mined from Morocco, it's brought to fertilize our crops, it's fed to livestock, it's then added in the form of manure. Um, and I, like, I knew that, but to hear her explain it that way was, I don't know, that was very helpful for me. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too, because as she was talking before she got to that point, I was just thinking like, okay, so we're stuck with it. How do we get it back to its source so that it's not essentially a contaminant in a new place? Mm -hmm. And there's no easy answer to that. The yeah. easiest answer would be to not put it on uh, if right. you don't need <laughs> it. That would be the easiest answer. And then I think it was Jacques who then shared that, you know, one of the, uh, perhaps it was Brent shared that. One of the problems is literally every fertilizer everywhere that comes uh, marketed in different ways, especially to smaller growers, it's got a phosphorus component, like all of them, small yeah. or large. There's like never not phosphorus in it. It's very rare. Right. Unless it's like blood meal or something super right. specific. Yeah. yeah. There's a few, you know, in the conventional world, there's a few good examples of like nitrogen only and potassium right. only fertilizers, but um but by and large, phosphorus comes linked with a lot of things. And so you just kind of get it as a byproduct. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's tough. It's like always being pushed. But uh, then I think Christy had mentioned something about trying to mine phosphorus where it, where it ends up. 
mm-hmm. which in our case in the Great Lakes is in the Great Lakes. Uh, and I'm just kind of picturing like these, I don't know, <laughs> what that like, like? <laughs> some kind of like phosphorus recovery factory in Toledo or something that's just like harvesting algae. I'm just thinking like, what would the impact of that be then? Yeah. We'd still have, we'd still have more phosphorus to be, to then be used again or right. sent back to Morocco. Like what is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like this, it's, I, the more we start talking about phosphorus, the more I think of it <laughs> as a forever chemical in some, in some ways, yeah. you know, there's like some benefits, just like there are benefits to stuff like PFAS. It, yep. except that it also ends up in places that we don't want it. And there are some, you know, downstream effects that, that are undesirable that. Yeah, there, there are definitely comparisons to be made with single use plastics containing. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And then your, your fourth guest chip was talking about legacy phosphorus too. And like, what is the effect of it now being mm-hmm. in the environment when we perhaps didn't need it to start with. And now it's here. It's not where we put it. It's moved. Yeah. So like, what are the responsibilities behind that? Oh man, a lot of great, this was a good one. This is like a hard candy that you can just suck <laughs> on this one for a while. Yeah. And he also mentioned how doing nothing is really hard to do. Yeah. To be like, just okay, I don't need that. It's like just, the hardest thing. <laughs> it's so tough, especially when a uh, nice, like two inch layer of compost looks so great. Yeah. So great on a bed. And you know, that some popular YouTubers are really good at, at showing like the bed preparation and this liberal compost edition and like these cool little hand drill machines that mix it in. It's like, that's the perfect, that's what I need. It's yeah. I've been talking more about like Instagram farmer celebrities in my outreach because there are so many accounts where these like farmer celebrities are saying that they're adding eight inches of compost every year and their beds look so beautiful. And like, you know, it's like, you can't compete with these like beautiful Instagram farm images, but that is being portrayed as the goal. And so, yeah, yeah, that's a really hard, like cultural force to move around there. So this leads to a question that I, I started thinking about over these first two episodes at how it appears that among most vegetable growers, organic matter is a, is a key little metric that's easy to latch on to. Um, as it be, it's just easy to latch onto. And the, the way to get it is to uh, essentially incorporate manures, incorporate cover crops, incorporate composts. And especially as it relates to manures and composts, it seems like there's, it's always a multi-nutrient analysis. And if you're trying mm-hmm. to do some of the fertilizer math that would meet your nitrogen needs, you're always going to oversupply phosphorus. Yeah. So it got me wondering, like, what are, is phosphorus always linked to organic matter? Are there organic matter sources without phosphorus? I feel like that should be, that should be the new frontier. What are those? Maybe they're obvious <laughs> and I'd sound like an idiot even asking the question, but. Yeah. I mean, cover crops are an obvious example, right? Like that's a great way to add a lot of nitrogen to your system without adding more phosphorus. I suppose um, unless there's already phosphorus there. You know right. I mean? So you're not at it. You're just like recycling yeah. the phosphorus that's there. And hopefully then eventually yeah. your crops will pull it out. Um, yeah. A legume, a legume cover crop would definitely augment that system to be, to have more nitrogen and more stable nitrogen as well. Yeah. In my outreach, I've started doing comparisons of like taking a common composted manure 
and saying, okay, I'm growing half an acre of spinach. So this is how much I would add to meet my, my, my nitrogen needs. This is how much I would add to meet my phosphorus needs. This is how much I would add, like if I'm also using a cover crop and sort of doing a cost comparison and mm. like almost every time, at least, at least because the organic, the approved compost manures that we have access to in this part of the Midwest are quite expensive. Mm. Um, like in almost every scenario, using a cover crop to meet your nitrogen needs and then like just using that composted manure to meet your phosphorus needs is substantially cheaper hmm. and then you don't get all this excess phosphorus and potassium too so i think sometimes including an economic analysis in there too can help to make the can help make it more appealing maybe yeah no that's an interesting approach yeah sometimes a pocketbook argument is a lot more effective mm-hmm Cool, Natalie. Good job on that. That concludes this episode of The Vegetable Beat. If you'd like to check out all of our past episodes, head on over to glveg.net slash listen. Bye.